0: to the presence of God through worship is one of the most amazing things that we can experience. And how sad is it if we are preoccupied to the place where we don't enjoy this wonderful experience. We could do it without any instruments, but we have the divine stamp of approval on using all the orchestra when you read through the book of Psalms, right? The drums and the cymbals and the strings and the pipes and things that haven't even been invented yet. So I love it when people who are gifted donate their gifts so that we can enjoy worship. And it can, in a very real sense, be enhanced by the very things God has created in diversity of gifts and voice and talents. David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. Boy, could he play. I'm only guessing. He's a great songwriter. We know that because of the Book of Psalms, and he could move people, even those who weren't even believers, by his music. And it gets me into the spirit of sharing and preaching the Word of God when I have the privilege of worshiping like that. Let's never take that for granted. Make sure you say thank you to the choir, thank you to Corb, thank you to those who play the instruments. Because they are a rich blessing to us. I came across this article that I thought was very moving, written by a distinguished attorney by the name of Mario Ortiz, who lives in the city of Cebu in the Philippines. He wrote this a few years ago, but he said, when I was 19 years old, that's when World War II broke out, I had just graduated from an advanced ROTC group, one of only seven graduates from all the colleges in Cebu City. It was a bleak period for our nation. There was the fall of Bataan, Corregidor, and we were despondent, he said. We thought everything was lost, but we were encouraged by the words of the U.S. General Douglas MacArthur, who had almost been surrounded on that island but escaped to Australia, and he left these words with them He vowed to the Filipino people, I shall return. Now, whatever you think about General MacArthur, put it off to the side for a moment because that was a daring thing to say and even a more daring thing to fulfill. Mario says that the soldiers on the Philippine islands were very beleaguered, they were very discouraged. He was arrested one morning at dawn by enemy soldiers and taken to a prison where he stayed for months. And he said, I prayed for my release and I prayed for General MacArthur to keep his word. It was at that time that the prevailing attitude among among many Allied officers, was not to go back to the Philippines, but to advance the war in other theaters. And, of course, that struck fear to the hearts of these wonderful people, these soldiers fighting for freedom. But then one day, one glorious day, General MacArthur showed up and waded through the waters of the shores of those islands and in triumph liberated the land And even this man who is, as I say, a distinguished attorney now in Cebu City. He said at the end of this article that General MacArthur's famous words were these, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And Mario T. said, I'm so glad, that may be true of soldiers, but I'm so glad that wasn't true of his promise. He kept his promise and his glorious deeds will never fade away from our memory. Isn't it great when someone keeps their word? <laughs> and isn't it sad that it is so rare? But basically, what I want to tell you this morning is simply this God keeps his promises, God always keeps his promises. And that's the theme. Of Joshua 23. Open up your Bibles to this chapter, Joshua 23. I hope you've had a chance maybe to pick up one of the charts that uh, we've produced there back at the Welcome Center. It divides the book of Joshua into two equal sections. Uh, The first 12 chapters is taking the land, and then the last 12 is dividing the land. But underneath that, there are some subheadings. There is the preparation, chapter 1 through 5, of sending in spies and setting up stones and crossing the river and affirming the covenant. And then there's the confrontation of the enemy at Jericho and Ai and dealing with the Gibeonites and then going to the south and going to the north, the different campaigns that we've discussed and then there is the occupation. So preparation, confrontation, occupation. And that's where they now are in the land and they divide it. The, the allotment is given to the 12 different tribes. And everyone has their territory. And as we talked about before, the Levites are given cities. And uh, they are uh, cities of refuge showing the mercy of God. But the last section... Uh, I simply call exhortation. So there's preparation, confrontation, occupation, and then exhortation, the last two chapters, where Joshua says farewell to the leaders and then says farewell to the people. And as we come to this portion of Scripture where We uh, see Joshua saying farewell. Chapter 23 is focused on the leaders. I'm sure some of the people were there as well, but he's going to address the congregation in the next chapter. Now the focus is on the leaders, and it's the very same leaders that he addressed. Remember at Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, there in the valley of Shechem, where the covenant was renewed, where they said together, We will follow the Lord. And now he brings those same leaders together for a final exhortation. What do you say to dear friends when you know these may be the last words that they will hear from your lips? I mean, if you're ever in that context, if you're listening to the last words of a dear loved one, or you are the one saying those words, aren't those words important? Isn't that time significant? Isn't the value of that relationship and that moment heightened? And here are Joshua's last words to his leaders. So we begin with 23, verse 1. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua by then was a very old man. He summoned all Israel, their leaders, elders, judges officials and said to them i am really old (laughs) how old was joshua it's a good question Um, he was an aide with moses when they came out of egypt so if he was 25 he spent 40 years in the wilderness so that puts him at 65 at least but maybe even older When you come to Joshua 13 in verse 1, the Bible tells us Joshua was old and well advanced advanced in years. That's back in chapter 13. In chapter 14, you remember the exploits of uh, Caleb, who was how old? 85. You're right. (laughs) He and Joshua were spies together, and maybe so they're of a similar age. I don't know. But in the next chapter, Joshua dies at the age of a hundred and ten. And so I'm guessing that we're close to the end, and this is within the ten years, he's probably at least a hundred years old. And here's one of his last sermons. Verse three, you yourselves have seen everything that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your, your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Isn't it great to take a moment and look back at all the goodness of God? You've seen with your very eyes what God has done, and it has been utterly amazing. The recent history reveals divine activity and miraculous power displayed on behalf of the Hebrew people, and they need to look back and remember that God did it. Notice the last part of verse 3, the Lord God fought for you. It's going to be brought up again in verse 10. One of you will rout a thousand because the Lord God fights for you. It's also very interesting, too, that when you get into verse 4, Joshua says, remember how I have allotted the inheritance for your tribes, all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, Joshua says. (laughs) What do you have here? You don't have a contradiction. You have a wonderful blending together of God's sovereignty and God's power displayed through human weakness. One can rout a thousand Verse 10, because God is fighting for you. I conquered the nations, Joshua said, because the Lord fought for them. And sometimes they didn't, they didn't do anything. It was the Lord who had the extended day and the Lord who sent the thunder and the hail. Many times the Lord drove the people out without even the army being around. So what is indispensable in the work of God is God. We just get along, get to go along for the ride. I remember years ago playing football and uh, the guys were much bigger than me and, and I wasn't very good but uh, as an end sometimes a, a pass receiver sometimes I would be brought into the line to block which I really hated but next to me was John Terraris he was 6'4 and an all county tackle and sometimes the play called for us to double team <laughs> well double teaming with John Terraris was easy Okay, John, you hit him and I'll follow. So when they look at the film, I want to be touching the other guy. I want to be close, you know, because when they look at the film and you're not doing anything, that's really bad. So John and I <laughs> would devastate the defense. Oh, I mean, well, John did it. And that's the kind, uh, kind of the way it is with our walk with God. Oh, you've been faithful, have you? Because of God's grace. Oh, your prayers are being answered, and you pray with power because of God's grace. Oh, you've defeated a sin. That's God fighting for you. You're just along for the ride. But what a privilege it is to be along for the ride and to be able to do something by the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 1, we are God's fellow workers. And the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. 1 Thessalonians tells us. So never forget this. God fights for you. But one of the sad things, verse 4, the nations that remain. Isn't that sad? The nations that remain. After all these years, some 30 years or more of fighting, And maybe that's true that Joshua came into the land at 80 because if they were in the land fighting for some 30 years and we don't know exactly how long it is, he dies at 110 and the job is not yet done. But he says in verse 5, the Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He'll drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land just as the Lord your God Promised. And that's the word I want to hunker down in. That's the word I want to highlight. That's the word I want to drive into your mind and your heart and mine. God makes promises. The promises that God made are amazing. He gave them the promise of the land and the promise to fight. For them. The promise of the land uh, is there in verse 5 to take possession of the land as the Lord your God promised. And then in verse 10, God will fight for you just as he promised. God makes promises, and we have the privilege of going along for the ride. Now, these are pretty amazing promises that are going to take amazing miracles, and that's what we've been studying all through the book. But he still says to the people, be strong, verse 6. The the same command he gave way back in chapter 1. Be strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. And so now, giving the promises, he highlights these things. Be careful to obey that's the first one be careful to obey all that is written let the word of god be your guide let the word of god give you uh, all the strength and wisdom you need when you have the word of god you have the mind of god and when you're filled with the word of god you have the wisdom of god so be careful to obey All that is written therein. You know, that's a good message for us because you and I like to obey part of it, but not all of it. Selective obedience is what we're very good at. And God says, obey it all. Again, hearkening back to chapter one. Make sure that you obey all that is written in the law of Moses and meditate on it and then you'll be successful. So the word of God is the promise of God, and we need to be careful to obey. Secondly, he says, hold fast to the Lord your God, verse 8. But you are to hold fast to the Lord. There's the warning in verse 7, which we'll take up a little bit later. Don't associate with the nations that still are in the land. Don't invoke their name. That means don't pray to them. Don't bow down and worship them. Don't swear by these gods. That is, don't take an oath because you always take an oath by something that is higher. And the moment you swear by one of these gods, you've elevated them to a position they should not hold. Idols are nothing. So don't pray to them. Don't make an oath in their name. Don't worship them. You be careful to obey all of God's word and be careful to hold Fast to the Lord your God. The word there in verse 8 to hold is the same Hebrew word found in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, the word cleave to his wife, and the two will become one. It's the same word of cleaving, of clinging, of holding fast. You see, God married Israel. That's the imagery of the Old Testament. And she is expected to be a faithful spouse. The wedding ceremony took place at Mount Sinai. They've had renewals of their vows, like in chapter 8 of Joshua. And God expects his bride to be faithful. Clinging to God speaks of a profound closeness an intimacy that should be experienced in the best of every marriage. And that's why the psalmist says, you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy as my soul cleaves to you. So there's the obeying of God's word, but there's the cleaving of uh, of ourselves to the Lord himself. We've got to get beyond mere precepts mere creeds as good as they are we go beyond the creeds to the creator we go beyond the precepts to the person and that's why the last thing he says in verse 11 is that you are to be very careful to love the lord your god be careful to obey be careful to cling and be careful to love Because love fulfills all the law. How many of you have a relationship with the Lord that is distant because it is almost professional? It's sterile. It's obedience and drudgery. God wants you to close the gap by not only obeying his truth, but clinging to his person. By the way, it's repeated over and over again in this chapter the Lord, your God. The word Lord is Yahweh. That is an objective way to describe his character. Your God is personal, that's subjective. And it's Yahweh, the creator of the world, is yours. Understand who he is, and then understand he's yours. And he invites you in. C.S. Lewis, just before he died, wrote a letter to an 11-year-old girl. And these are some of the words in that letter. He said to her, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope you always do. Isn't that beautiful? It sounds a lot like what St. Augustine said. When he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and then do whatever you want. Now, if you are a Pharisee, that really shocks you. Oh, no, no, you can't tell people do whatever they want. But if they love the Lord their God with all their heart, they can. Because what they want to do will be what he desires for them to do. And Lewis says it almost the same way. If you love Jesus, continue to love Jesus Nothing else really matters. And you can't go wrong. And yet we read in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, they left their first love. You know, that's one of my greatest fears for South Church, that we will be active and prosperous and distant from the God who has blessed us. So easy, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. And that's a good prayer. Seal my heart. But we're not done when we pray that prayer. God says now every day I want you to give your heart to me. And love me. And show that you're mine. So promises made, verse 5, promises kept, verse 14. We'll jump down a little bit. There's the warning again in verse 12. This is the second time they're warned. If you turn away and you ally yourselves uh, with the survivors of the nations that remain among you, if you intermarry with them, And associate with them. By the way, this intermarriage is not a question of race, it's a question of faith. It's not that it's wrong to intermarry someone from another race, Moses did. But you shouldn't marry someone from another faith. Why? They will take you away from God. Just like the idols do. By the way, idols are very attractive and effective in weaning people away from the true God because idols are fashioned after your own preference and imagined after your own lusts. And idols are under your control. (laughs) And that's why God was so clear. Don't associate. Don't intermarry. Don't worship the gods that these people worship. Otherwise, verse 14, these people will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes. That's pretty vivid, isn't it? Um, whips on your back. What was that uh, little phrase we used to say, something about making a promise, and that if I don't fulfill my promise, may I die and stick a needle in my eye? Remember that? I had it memorized before I came out here, and now I can't remember it. And most of you remember it. Uh, what an awesome thing to say. But it was basically saying, if I don't keep my promise, may bad things happen to me. And one of the worst things a child could think of, I guess, was sticking a needle in their eye. And that sounds a whole lot like thorns in your eyes. You'll perish from the good land that God has given you. So there's the second warning. But promises made and promises kept, verse 14. By the way, that's a good summary of God's relationship with humanity. Promises made, promises kept. Some promises are unconditional, meaning God will do them no matter what we do. Many promises are conditioned based on our obedience or disobedience. So look at verse 14, and I love this verse. God says now, or Joshua says, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth, the way of all flesh, a euphemism for death. You know with all of your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Isn't that an amazing statement? Think about it for a moment. These promises are successful promises. They're always fulfilled. Not one has failed. They're plentiful promises. All the promises God gave you. Sounds like the garden. You can eat from all the trees in the garden. There's only one you should avoid. Thirdly, these are good promises, verse 14 says, which means they're intent on blessing you, filling you with joy, satisfying your soul. They're good promises. And finally, they're your promises. Verse 14. They're given to you. That's why they're called precious promises in the New Testament. They are successful. They are plentiful. They are good. And they're yours. Embrace them. Live on the promises of God. We can't live on the results we see. We must live on the promises we've received. And those promises are great. What, promises, what promise are you clinging to today? Then get one. If you can't think of one, get one. And have one every day. And live on the promises of God because they're amazing. But verse 15 introduces us once again to a warning. The promise is kept. There are good promises and there are Hard promises. Verse 15, just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so he will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land. If you violate his covenant, if as a wife you become unfaithful and serve other gods, in the New Testament the church is called the bride of Christ, If you serve other gods bowed out of them, the Lord's anger will burn against you. And instead of being richly blessed, you'll be punished by the hand of the God who gives. You think back on it. Privilege, in the midst of God's people, blessing to be brought up under the sound of the gospel does not secure eternal life, or does not give to us the multiple blessings God wants us to enjoy. We have to obey and cling and love. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Let the word of God dwell in you richly. You know, sometimes we quote verses and and about how the Bible needs to be in control of us. I think often of 2 Timothy 2, study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, how the Word of God is inspired. But that really was a preacher speaking to a preacher as far as the immediate context. And we sometimes say, well, maybe that's not for me. This one's for every Christian in the church at Colossae. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean? How about saturate? How about marinate? Oh, I like that. A good marinated chicken. Tastes a lot better than plain old chicken. The flavor is everywhere. And so it should be with the word of God. We ought to soak ourselves in the scriptures. And what in particular? Well, I would encourage you to read through the Bible, whether it takes you a year or two. But soak in the promises of God. Live. Standing on the promises of Christ, my King. What about those promises? They never fail. They're always fulfilled. They're good and plentiful and yours. That's what we must remember. You have to remember that the Bible is a two-edged sword, blessing to those who obey and harm, chastening to those who disobey. So the Word of God is our only access into the presence of God. You say, well, what about prayer? Yes, prayer based on the word of God. You wouldn't know what to pray were it not for the word of God. You wouldn't know who God is unless it was the word of God. Into his presence. And so the Bible tells us that God is very concerned to bless his people. Spurgeon put it this way. He used to say, God will not allow his people to sin successfully He may let lost people do that, but not his people. He's coming after us. And he wants to draw us back into the place of blessing. And if we don't, judgment is ours. Many people don't know that the famous author, Ernest Hemingway, had grandparents who were committed evangelical Christians on both sides. His paternal grandparents were graduates of Wheaton College and close personal friends with D.L. Moody. His maternal grandfather was such a godly patriarch that the grandchildren would call him Abba. (laughs) And in that evangelical atmosphere, he was reared in Oak Park, Illinois, but when he left, He became a worldwide emblem for living as you please, a bohemian lifestyle. He once wrote I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there's no current to plug into. Talk about despair. And what did he do? Yeah, took his life. But he had the gospel, so close. So that's why it's not just the gospel for you, it's the gospel to your kids and to your grandkids, lest your history and my history read like this. Now there's a sense in which we can't force our children and grandchildren to obey, but there's another sense in which we've got to pour ourselves into them, live in such a way that they see a real example And pour ourselves into them and pray. Because the blessings of God are immense. The consequences of disobedience are devastating. The blessings to those who fear God, unbelievable. The chastisement to those who don't, you won't be able to take it, it'll be so bad. God keeps his word, the good promises and the hard promises. But I'm glad God keeps his word. Many years ago, there, actually it wasn't all that long ago, but I guess 25, 30 years ago, there was a little boy, three year old boy by the name of Matt Grodsky, and in his Preschool class, he stood up in front of all his classmates and declared his love for Laura Schleel. And he said, I'm going to marry her. Three years old. They met in preschool in Phoenix, Arizona. Grodzky was immediately drawn to Laura because she followed him around everywhere he went. He thought that must be true love. I'm going to marry her. They stayed together. Their earliest memories were playdates, trips to the movies. I think we have some pictures here. This is them in uh, the very beginning, kind of, I guess that looks like a Halloween adventure. The next picture is them at a swimming pool. So here's their playdates together, their early life. All they can remember is being together until elementary school when they went to separate schools, and to high school, different high schools, and they rarely... Stayed in touch except for Christmas cards that the family would send back and forth. And then someone introduced them back to each other in high school. They began to text. And they went to different colleges 1,600 miles apart. But before his senior year, when Laura had come home, Matt arranged to propose to her and had his brother as a photographer to take this picture of the proposal. Not a very good picture, but uh, she was shocked. And she said yes, and I think it was a year later, here's the wedding, they're both 23 years old. When the kids in the preschool laughed at what Matt said he was going to do, he said, I'm going to marry her, just you wait, and sure enough, he kept his word 23 years later. Now, I don't think there's anyone in here that expects a three-year-old to keep his word. But I want you to know God is not three. And he always keeps his word. Every promise to you. Let's bank on it. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see this truth that you are faithful. The one who called us is faithful and he will do it. You will see to it that every promise is fulfilled but if we reject you you will see to it that every warning becomes real it's not your fault it's ours so Lord draw us into faithfulness may we cling to Christ who is our righteousness may we cling to your forgiveness and your grace and live every day serving you with all of our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen.